We begin today session 13 in a who knows how long series uh, called the leaven of liturgy. We're just going to go until we're done. But in session 13 today, we have just finished the consecration prayers uh, found on page 80 and 81 of the 1928 American Book of Common Prayer. We're turning the page now to page 82, in which we find the Lord's Prayer and what we have called the Prayer of Humble Access, though those words are not used in that particular prayer. It has been called the Prayer of Humble Access. There's plenty of material to cover today, and so we're going to begin. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. One thing to point out here as we turn the page to page 82 beginning with the phrase, and now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, we should point out that when Jesus Christ teaches how to pray, the prayer that he gives is not a guideline or some suggestions on prayer. It's a liturgical prayer. It's the prayer that you are to pray. When you pray, say this, which is, uh, no offense, liturgy. Liturgy. <laughs> A liturgical prayer. Sometimes people will say, how can you pray the same things every week? Well, when the, well, let's see, when uh, the apostles asked Jesus to teach us to pray in the gospel according to St. Luke, he said, when you pray, pray this, pray this way. The Lord's Prayer has been used in Holy Communion liturgies since the fourth century, uh, originally used after the fraction, which is the breaking of the host, and the kiss of peace, which used to be something we would do. And uh, maybe one day we'll reinstitute the kiss of peace, but probably not soon. Um, but if the, if the Lord's Prayer has been used in Holy Communion liturgies since the 4th century, which is the first century in which you could probably find a more complete uh, printed, not printed, but a complete liturgy, since the 4th century was the, the first century in which the Christians had freedom to worship and organize and crystallize the liturgy. That probably means the Lord's Prayer has been used in liturgy since long before that. But, so this is, uh, this is no new thing to the Eucharistic liturgy. It used to be put in a slightly different spot. Uh, Gregory the Great placed it at the close of the consecration, so that would be 8th century placed it at the close of the consecration, which is exactly where we have it, um, as sort of a climax of the consecration. We'll get into that in just a second. Uh, Thomas Cranmer moved it to somewhere else in the liturgy in the 1549, but in the 1928 American BCP, they moved it back. So thankfully, we're right back where we were uh, saying the Lord's Prayer at this particular spot as a climax of the consecration prayer. Um, a corporate prayer. But nevertheless, just to point out, for those who aren't so sure about liturgy and using what people call set prayers, usually sort of condescendingly, how do you pray those set prayers? Well, 
Jesus taught us a set prayer too, so <laughs> I'm a little snarky today, sorry. Uh, uh, we should uh, point out what I'm, I'm just messing around. I'm calling it a focal oscillation, okay? So you're, the focus of the liturgy has been, let's say the prayer uh, of the Lord's Prayer itself begins with the heavenward focus, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that moves towards our own circumstance. Give us this day our daily bread. Starts here. Give us this day our daily bread. In the end, for thine is the kingdom. You're all the way back up again. It's a little oscillation. You start at the top. You come down. You go back up to the top. And you might notice that the liturgy has just brought us through the same kind of oscillation. We were, uh, we were down... Well, if you went through the whole liturgy... Uh, this last little section here, we were in the prayer for the whole state of Christ's church, which is us. Absolution, uh, confession, absolution, which is us. Sursum corda is literally hearts lifted high. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. And we're all the way up to the consecration. And then the oblation at the end is, and here we present ourselves, our souls and our bodies, and we're back down to us. And so this sort of focal oscillation is heavenward, earthward, heavenward, earthward. And uh, if you think about the whole liturgy, it's the same sort of thing. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. And then it's uh, the, the summary of the law that he gave us. And then Lord have mercy upon us. And it, it goes up and down and up and down like that in sort of an oscillation. And the, the Lord's Prayer is doing the same thing. Um, and so we look then, as we come to this sort of climax of the consecration, in a sense, as, as it's been described by one commentator, we look at the prayer that he actually taught us. Taught is a good word. Because we say, and now as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say, taught us is not a randomly chosen word because in Luke chapter 11, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray uh, just as John taught his disciples. In other words, John the Baptist was teaching his disciples how to pray. And these disciples were following Jesus. And they got jealous or something, and they said, teach us to pray. He's teaching them to pray. Teach us to pray. And uh, he said unto them, when ye pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. That's the beginning. Uh, so he is literally teaching us the prayer. Now, you, uh, perhaps you've heard this before. It's possible to use the Lord's Prayer as a set of guidelines, um, when you pray, begin by directing your prayers heavenward and adoring the Lord. Before you get to your list of things that you want him to do, start with adoration and uh, a confession. And then, you know, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Give us a stay our daily bread. All those components of the prayer could be taken as a format too but really he's teaching us to pray these words and so we should look at these words our father who art in heaven and the question you may uh, ask yourself is in heaven 
I stridently resist paintings like this simply because it's an anthropomorphism of the Father. There is no place in the New Testament or the Old Testament where the Father is pictured as an old man with a a flowing white beard, shirtless or not, sometimes shirtless (laughs) in some of these paintings. It's, uh, I would say it's not helpful. There's only one member of the Holy Trinity that was incarnate as a man, and that's the second person, Jesus. So when we picture the Father as a man, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll say it's unscriptural. Okay, like a good Baptist, I'll slam my fist and say, that's not in the Bible. So what do we mean, who art in heaven then? St. Augustine has something to say. In heaven, that is the place where holiness and justice reign. For God is not contained spatially. It is not written that the Lord is closer to tall people or to those who live on higher hills, which I find to be great. Whenever you turn back to the fourth and fifth century and find comedy, that's great. So uh, if he's trying to make you feel silly about the idea that you think if I got in a spaceship and took off from Cape Canaveral and went into orbit, I would be closer to God there than I was here. And that's immediately and obviously ridiculous. So when we ask, when we, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, if you've never thought about it, if your mind always goes to Alpha Centauri and says, Far, far out there is where God is, and down here in this dirty earth is where he's not. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's, uh, first of all, Gnostic, which is a heresy. But uh, secondly, that's not what's meant. The place where holiness and justice reign. If God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. But heaven is where uh, the reign of holiness and his justice resides. You could say that a number of different ways. I'm just telling you how St. Augustine uses it. In case you've ever thought to yourself, how far out into outer space do I need to go to meet God? There is an episode of Star Trek where they do go into some nebula somewhere and they encounter God or something like that. It's very weird. You can tell that's not, that's also not in the Bible, okay? Um, so what, that's what we mean when we say, or what, I, what most would say the Lord means when he says, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Here's another hard one, okay? Hallowed be thy name. And a question comes to us when we're praying in general. If, if, if the thought has ever crossed your mind, what's the point in praying for, everything, for anything? God already knows everything. And God's already going to do whatever he's going to do. Why am I praying for this? Um, what is the purpose of praying for things that already are? Hallowed coming from the same word as holy. If God is already holy... What does me praying that his name be hallowed supposed to mean? What's that supposed to mean? Uh, and, and for that matter, when we say all glory be to thee, if all glory is already his, why are we saying it? Um, here's uh, something from St. Cyprian of Carthage, which is third century. Not so that our prayers will make him holy, but that his name will be hallowed in us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So as you're turning heavenward, you're actually turning a little bit inward. 
hallowed be thy name. Because you know good and well that in your own heart, God is not always hallowed. In fact, there are plenty of other things that make it into a hallowed spot in you. And God falls to second, third uh, tier. But when you pray this prayer, hallowed be thy name, you're trying to set things right. And this is what the Lord is teaching us, how to pray. When you pray, start by getting things straight in your own head and in your own heart. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right. Almighty God, into whom all, all hearts are open, all desires none, from whom no secrets are hid. Why was I pretending that all these secrets were hid? You're reminded of it right away. He already saw that. He already knew that. He knew your thought. And you, and you shudder to think that sometimes, but that's a good place to start. Let's get things straight. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Another one. If his kingdom is here, why are we praying that this kingdom would come? Not far from the original statement just now. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Origen, in his commentary, says this. The kingdom of God, according to the word of our Lord and Savior, comes not with observation. And these are the words of Christ. Neither shall they say, behold here or behold there. Like uh, you could look over at... Romania and say, oh, look, the kingdom of God is in Romania or the kingdom of God is in Alaska or finally the kingdom of God came to Simpsonville. It's uh, according to the word of our Lord in Luke chapter 17, same uh, same gospel six chapters later after Christ teaching the disciples how to pray. He says, speaking of that kingdom that I taught you to pray about, It does not come with observation, and neither shall they say, Behold here or behold there, but the kingdom of God is within you. Thy kingdom come. What is at the very center of a kingdom? And don't say castle. The very center of a kingdom is a king. If you don't have a king, you don't have much of a kingdom, right? Thy kingdom come. Kingdom is not too far from rule and reign. Thy kingdom come, because the very next thing you say is, Thy will be done on earth, which means in me and in this place where I am, as it is in heaven, which is the place where you are, where holiness and righteousness and justice and your, your kingdom reigns. Thy, uh, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before you've ever even asked for anything, before you've gotten to your prayer list, and there isn't much of a prayer list in the Lord's Prayer, if you've ever noticed that, uh, the prayer is setting you straight and setting God straight in you before you ever get to a request. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord in Garden of Gethsemane had his own struggle when he faced the cross and he said, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me or I could accomplish the same thing in another way, um, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. That's what you're praying in the Lord's prayer. He followed his own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, He's already king. The question is, who will genuflect? Will you genuflect? You will eventually, it says, every, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. 
That's, you know, in the final judgment. What about today? What about, well, let's see, January 15th. Who will genuflect today? We put pads on the kneelers to make it more comfortable. But there's a genuflection coming in the Eucharist here. And for those who've been at the early service, you've already bent the knee. Uh, today is the day of salvation. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Yes, he's already king. And has his kingdom come to you yet? Maybe partially. Maybe there needs to be more kingdom in you. Um, you like this word? Panis supersubstantialis. I bet you there's one or two hands that go up that recognize this. This is, a, this is an interesting part of the Lord's Prayer, I will say. Interesting part of the translation of the Lord's Prayer. Okay? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our panis supersubstantialis. Never said that one, have you? You may have heard it, actually. Uh, we translated in English as give us this day our daily bread. But the word in Greek is hardly the word daily. It's another one of these things. If you've ever uh, tried to translate English to German or something like that and found that there isn't a word for that, we have to find a word that's close. Uh, the word in Greek translated to daily is epiousios. And if you know the word ousios from the third, uh, First Ecumenical Council, you'll know it means substance. So, or essence, same thing. Daily is a translation of epiousios above the essence. Supersubstantial, if you want to change it to Latin, panis meaning bread, supersubstantial bread. And in one or the other liturgy, you may hear one day, if you're visiting another church, you may hear someone say, give us this day our supersubstantial bread. And you'll say, heresy. Wait a second, wait a second. That's a Latin translation of the Greek word. It's a little closer, actually. And we're, we're going to really have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by super substantial then? Uh, another way to translate that sometimes is needful. And what is that supposed to mean? Uh, the Orthodox Study Bible has a little commentary here. What kind of bread is this? Super substantial, epiousios, needful, daily bread? Bread for the eternal day of the kingdom of God for sustenance of our immortal life, as opposed to rye, sourdough, wonder bread, okay? That's bread bread. That's substantial bread. Super substantial bread is bread that is the body of Christ, which is according to its substance, you could say, uh, bread, and according to its essence, it is the body of Christ. Grant us this day, give us this day, our epiousios. Now, there's several centuries of, of church history and theology behind this, but you should recognize that what we mean by daily is not your food, your sandwich. Um, the reason it's been placed in there uh, and translated as daily is not so that you would mistake it for your bread, like your sustenance, it's so that you would associate the fact that you need food every day. You would associate that with what the Lord is giving you in his grace. He's giving you something you're going to need. Not something that you can neglect for 10 years and have no difference. You need it today. You need it at least weekly. A 
needful bread, sometimes translated, most often daily bread. But the Greek is epiousios, the Latin is supersubstantialis. And who's ever heard that before? Has anybody ever heard that before? No? Well, there you go. Day one. (laughs) We say this just as we are about to receive bread that we are commanded to eat or we have no life in us. Oof, John chapter 6. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That sounds a lot more like needful bread. And you can go 40 days without rye, sourdough, or, well, now that we're low gluten, you can go the rest of your life without bread, all different kinds of sustenance. But this bread, if you do not partake, you have no life in you, says the Lord. That's needful. And that's above the essence of, uh, of you know, give us more bread, we're still hungry. Uh, St. Cyprian of Carthage again. And we ask that this bread should be given to us daily, that we who are in Christ, this is third century, so daily is not a modern innovation or something like that. This is an old interpretation of this, not bad, daily. That we should be given to us daily, that we who are in Christ and daily receive the Eucharist for the food of salvation may not, by the interposition of some heinous sin, be separated from Christ's body. And therefore we ask that our bread, that is Christ, may be given to us daily that we who abide and live in Christ may not depart from his sanctification and body. Uh, We don't want to depart from him. We don't want him to depart from us because in essence, this is life to us. Um, He is giving us himself in this sacrament. And so we ask that our bread that is Christ may be given to us daily. You can sense a little bit of the... eh, I'm not against the, uh, the devotional entitled Our Daily Bread, but what you have taken into your mind when you see that title is Our Daily Bread is a little word of encouragement. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you can go weeks without, a, without encouragement or weeks without a Bible study even. Um, and the Lord didn't say, if you don't uh, go to Bible study, you have no life in you. And so I hesitate a little bit when I get to get excited about our daily bread um, because it's a little bit of a, of a stretch to say that that means a devotional. Panis supersubstantialis, consider John 6, the request for more bread, okay? And Jesus' answer about himself. The people who had just seen the multiplication of the loaves come back to Jesus and say, what sign will you give us? Uh, you know, like... I have that little grumble in the tummy again. What sign will you give us? And perhaps if you made more bread, we would, you know, uh, you know, we would respond to you more positively. And Jesus essentially says, no, I am the bread. That's why I did that for you. Not so that you'd want more bread, but so that you'd want me. I am the bread. I am the way, the truth, the life. Um, no one comes to the Father but by me. You need me more than you need another loaf of bread. Um, if that, that same sort of line, we're still in the Gospel of John here. John chapter 4, think of this. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinketh of this water, to the woman at the well, whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, because that's water, water. Water, water, you'll thirst again in a couple hours, even. 
But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I would say that would be aqua supersubstantialis. This is above the essence of water. He's giving us water, but he's giving us a well that will spring up into eternal life. That's not just water, and that's not just bread. Got it? <laughs> We've got to keep going. Uh, this is a, a big shift in, in the prayer. Forgive as we forgive. And forgive us our trespasses. Uh, give us this day our daily bread was the first request. The second request is, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, consider that in the Gospel according to St. Matthew... Uh, this version of the Lord's Prayer has Jesus say right after teaching to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, if you forgive, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you forgive not, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. If you are wondering what Jesus meant by forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass, if you're thinking, well, you know, as we forgive those could be at the same time or... or uh, as in time we forgive others, forgive us. No, he tells you what he means right after that. If you do not forgive, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. You're asking him to forgive you in the same way that you forgive others. And that is probably the most jaw-dropping part of the Lord's Prayer because you've asked him to limit his forgiveness of you. You're asking him to do that. Jesus taught you. To ask the Lord to limit the forgiveness that you give to me. Limit it to the kind of forgiveness I give to others. You better get busy forgiving others. Is the, the, the catch 22 or the, the gist of the Lord's prayer. Jesus is teaching you this. You expect to be forgiven of everything. And expect to forgive others of just whatever you good and well feel like you are ready to do. Oh, how about if the Lord just forgives you of just whatever he's good and willing, ready to do, just like you do? <laughs> well, that's trouble. So uh, I've heard, it, you've probably read in a, in a devotional or two, be careful when you pray the Lord's Prayer. What you're asking for is a little severe, actually. Um, you should probably prepare yourself to pray the Lord's Prayer. And in the earliest uh, liturgies of the church, just as communion was held back from the unbaptized, they would not include this portion in any prayer that visitors would say. We cannot require a visitor to say the Lord's Prayer. Only a baptized member of the church would be able to say the Lord's Prayer with us all corporately because that's not messing around. You've just asked for something pretty severe and we're all dedicated to it. We'll forgive until the cows come home because we want to be forgiven until the cows come home. Uh, that's, that's important. But that's built right into the way the Lord has taught us to pray. We're getting down to the end here of the Lord's Prayer before we get to the prayer of humble access. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And of course, you recognize in Matthew, the prayer ends with this doxology. Or something like a doxology. And Luke does not include this. In Luke's prayer, the, uh, 
He has Jesus teaching them, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And in some liturgies, the Lucan version is used, and in others, the Matthean version is used. And I've, heard, I've had people say to me, you know, that the one is, is wrong or heretical or, or the church has added something to it. I don't think so. Uh, it just happens to be that one in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught it this way. And in Luke, at another account, he taught it a different way. If you've ever taught a class more than once, you know that you teach it a little bit different the next time than you did the first time. If you're a traveling preacher and you're going to preach, like, for instance, the story of the, uh, the wedding banquet where people refused to attend, if you're going to tell that story 25 times, you maybe tell it a little bit different depending on the audience, depending on, and there's nothing wrong with that. So if you find in the scripture what you might call a discrepancy, it's not a discrepancy, he taught it twice or more than, more than twice, the Lord's Prayer. But you've got to keep your head up liturgically because in the Eucharist you get the Matthean version. In the litany you get the Lucan version. Every once in a while you'll be caught the only person saying, for thine is the king. <laughs> and actually, when we do the Stations of the Cross, the Lucan version is included. And I always do the Methian because I don't want people to get caught, but maybe I'll start getting tough. And we'll do the Lucan and say, you didn't pay attention? Well, sorry. Maybe I'll do that this year. Uh, but consider thy kingdom come and thine is the kingdom. We've got uh, a, a little circle here. We've come full circle with our prayer um, at the beginning and at the end of our prayer, ha- our mention of the kingdom, which is this prayer is for those who have genuflected and th- for those who have acknowledged that Christ is the king. Now, between the Lord's Prayer and the uh, Prayer of Humble Access comes the fraction, at least in our liturgy, it typically comes at that point. You could say that the rubrics tell you to do the fraction a page earlier. <clears throat> but this is where we're at in continuing Anglicanism and at St. George. This is a prayer book tradition with some missal tradition as well. The missal tradition has the fraction in a different spot. And you'll hear some other prayers that you'll say, where is that in the, in the, in the prayer book? I don't see the, the centurion's prayer in here anywhere. It's because it's from the missal. It's an older tradition. And many, if not most, of our churches have reinserted it back into the liturgy, even though it's not in the 1928. Uh, and so the tradition of the Missal is to do the fraction here rather than the earlier spot. Um, at this point, the host is broken, the fraction. And the priest says, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And you respond, and with thy spirit. Um, at which point, we could all turn and kiss one another. Which I say, yuck. <laughs> I see someone putting their finger in their mouth. Because it is true that in the history of the church, this would have been a spot where we have turned and given the kiss of peace, which has been softened to the, what's the other one where you don't kiss each other, you shake hands and say, the peace of the Lord, passing the peace, passing the peace. Both of which I think are totally distracting. Complete and utter distraction right here in the middle of the liturgy. So, but if you do go to a church and they do the kiss of the peace, a kiss of peace or pass the peace, you don't have to say heresy because it's actually, it's a pretty old tradition, but we're a little cagey about kissing in the West. And so, yeah, 
Also, the, the service could descend into a conversation about uh, Travis Lawrence's miraculous comeback. What is, his, is that his name, the, the quarterback yesterday? Trevor Lawrence, yeah, his miraculous football comeback. If you've ever been to a church that, where they do sort of a, everybody shake each other's hands, it can descend into mayhem. So this is the last place where you want to descend into mayhem. Uh, the missiles contain other prayers here. And so you'll notice that if Bishop Chad comes and visits here, if, if you go to the synod uh, of our diocese, or if you see Father Stokes and sometimes Father Souter, when they celebrate, there'll be a portion here where you can hardly hear what he's saying. Uh, that's because the missile gives you an instruction. Then with hands still extended, he says silently, Deliver us, we beseech thee, O Lord, from all evils past and present and to come, and at the intercession of the blessed and glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with that of thy blessed apostles Peter and Paul and Andrew and of all the saints, favorably grant peace in our time that by the health of thy mercy we may be ever kept free from sin and safe from all disquietude through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth God, and then out loud, world without end. If you've ever been to a church or seen it when the bishop does it, when he comes here and there's this portion where it's quiet for a little while and then he says, world without end, and everyone says, amen. Where in the world did he get that? He got it right out of the missile. There are some other prayers. That one's to be said silently. There's another prayer to be said in a low voice. You may hear these distinctions. Someone saying something that sounds like whispers. Another word says something that sounds like you can almost hear it. That's a low voice. And then there's a voice for everyone to hear. I'm not going to get all into that. I'm just telling you, in many of our churches, and even in our church at times, you'll hear that moment. Be patient. It's the missile. It's part of our tradition also. We turn now to the prayer of humble access, which we have some time for. This is an excellent prayer. Some have said it's you know, one of the, the best composed prayers in the Western world. It's, a, it's fantastic. And so we say these words after, after the, the fraction. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. And if you have, you should switch that right now. We just gave you the opportunity to switch that. If you came to the altar thinking, boy, I'm proud of myself. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. If you're wondering where that crumbs under the table quote came from, the Canaanite woman who comes out to Jesus and and the disciples and asks that Jesus would heal her daughter and he's seemingly quite rude to her. He says, uh, she says, son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And he answers her, nothing. That's the rudest thing. Because the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference, right? He seems indifferent. Oh, that hurts even more. Uh, his disciples came and besought him saying, send her away. Uh, for she crieth after us, and we're annoyed. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost uh, sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered her and said, It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Oh, it's getting worse. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. 
Then Jesus answered and said to her, Woman, great is thy faith. Why do we take her words into our mouths at this portion of the prayer of humble access? Because this is the humblest a person could probably be in the presence of Christ to be willing to be initially seemingly ignored. Secondly, uh, called a dog to still ask for access and to say, yes, but even the crumbs from the table. This is why we say uh, that his property is always to have mercy. And even though we do not approach this table trusting in our own righteousness, uh, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. However, we do know of a woman who you said had the greatest faith and we would like to be associated with her if it were possible. So we pray the same prayer, hopefully not with presumption, but with the same faith that she had. And the request, our request is grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood. Not only that, but so that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood. Now we may have a daughter back in Tyre and Sidon who's grievously vexed with the devil, but we have not brought that to him today. What we're asking for today is that by receiving his body and blood, we would be made clean by his body and our souls would be washed through his blood. That's our request. We could have said our daughter is grievously vexed with the devil, but the actual request is that we would receive, as St. Paul would say, worthily to our soul's benefit and nourishment and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us, a very presumptuous request, except that it's revealed to us that this is the will of God, that he would dwell in you and you would dwell in him. What in the world are we asking? Soteriology just means theology of salvation. That soteriology or that theology of indwelling or theosis, which is almost approached by asking Jesus into your heart, which I resist vehemently in some ways, but in other ways, it's actually exactly correct. Ask the Lord to come and dwell in you. Uh, it was said that he may increase and I decrease. That's not that far from the Lord coming to live in you. And if you're picturing a little person, a little Jesus coming to dwell in your abdomen, well, you should you know, beef that up a little bit. But even that's not so bad because that means he's in you. A little child may envision that. That's not so bad. That's not so bad. It's a little weird, but a soteriology of indwelling and theosis. Uh, theosis is a Greek word really meaning uh, what the church fathers have said. It's, it's, it's woven into our creed if you read it carefully. Um, he has come down to us so that we may ascend up to him. He has become us so that we may become him. In other words, uh, and the, the very strong words of St. Athanasius were, God has become man that man might become God. Of course, we don't mean that you'll take on the essence of the Trinity or something like that. But you're being not just transactionally forgiven, you're being incorporated 
organically brought into the corpore, the body of Christ. You're incorporated into him. You're participating in him. And he's participating in you. All these words are very helpful, I think. When we talk about forgiveness, yes, you will be forgiven. But it's a lot more than that. When you wrong someone and you go and ask for forgiveness and they forgive you, you go on your merry way. Well, you will be forgiven, but your merry way is not going on anywhere. Your merry way is going right into Christ and him coming right into you. That's indwelling or theosis. The prayer is that super substantial bread and super substantial wine, the sacramental body and blood of Christ, would be the cleansing of our bodies and the washing of our souls. And that Christ would dwell in us and we would dwell in him. Salvation is being in Christ and Christ being in you. Yes, that means you'll be forgiven, but more than being forgiven. And yes, that means you'll not only be declared righteous, but his righteousness will be yours. How could I be justified? How can, you know, as some people say, you know, when when the father looks on us, he sees Christ. Uh, And some of us shudder if you think about as, as sort of like a, a covering, a cloak, right? Uh, or, or if you think of forgiveness as God has forgotten your sin. Mm, it's not very helpful because the last thing you want to do then is remind him. If he forgot, but you remember, don't tell him because he'll remember. You, you see how it's like a metaphor. It's, a, it's an image. What's really going on is... Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness and you don't get to run off somewhere else and have his righteousness with you. Your righteousness, his righteousness is yours because you're in him and he's in you. And everything he's given you to maintain, to initiate and maintain that is here in the church. And that's why we say you got to come to church. Not because your mom says so, not because it's just right. But because this is where you're being fed and nourished and continually participating in God. Yes, you will depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. But you've come here because this is where the food is. This is where the nourishment is. This is where the daily bread is. The super substantial epiousios bread is here. And so that's, that's the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer foe humble access. All right. <laughs> I didn't fix that one. Prayer of humble access. This is a great part of the liturgy. Though, and if you've ever noticed, uh, I do this now. Uh, the, th- the little square card that we put on top of the chalice is called the pall. P-A-L-L. A pall goes over something or someone who has died. But if a pall comes off, symbolism is of resurrection. If... If the body and blood of your body and blood are separated, you have died. There's no way for you to exist without blood. But when these two are put back together again, there's a resurrection. You'll notice sometimes you'll come to the chalice and it'll look like there's some particles of bread in there. And your instinct is, ew, yuck. You know, there's something in my drink. Many clergy will take the host and rub them together like that to get as many crumbs uh, you know, in, into, that, into that chalice as possible, you have to understand what's, what's going on. But we will, at the fraction, break a piece off and place it in the chalice because now it's consecrated, okay? 
This is the body and blood of Christ. I don't put the pall back on. I leave the pall off. If the room is full of gnats and flies, I'll put the pall back on (laughs) for a physical reason. But theologically, you take the pall off because the body and blood of Christ are now present. Um, That's that's the nature of uh, this consecration, this Lord's Prayer, prayer of humble access, and we're about to receive. That's the very next thing. Any uh, comments or questions about the Lord's Prayer and the prayer of humble access in our... Uh, Janet was first. Janet. You did not go over the part about and lead us not into temptation. That's true. Is it, is it Pope Francis that has said he'd like to see that change too? And do not let us be led into temptation? It sounds like we're asking God not to lead us into temptation. You know, uh, there may be a point in the Greek there where... Uh, so I didn't study so much this week on lead us not into temptation. I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. <laughs> There's too much else to say. But uh, yeah, it does seem like a strange request. Why would he lead us into temptation? Nevertheless, if he had the power to do it, we'd ask him not to do it. And I suppose you could say there, uh, there may be a Greek element. I'll have to look it up. There may be a passive element. Let us not be led into temptation. But I don't know that. That's why I can't give you... It's all about the English translation. And sometimes uh, words are spelled a particular way in Greek that are ambiguous as to whether it's uh, to be interpreted one way or the other. And the interpreters have to just pick one. Um, So I don't know that that's the case here. I should look it up. But uh, actually, it was Bob and then it was Mike. Uh, Michael. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. You said that was super substantial. Right. Is there a sense in which we still get our daily bread when we pray that every day? We're praying that, you know. Well, um, you, you, what, oh, I, you mean bread, bread, or do you mean nourishment for this day? Yeah, I would say to me it's most obviously sacramental, but, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when the Lord says to those people who are present, I am the bread, it's, it's most obviously interpreted sacramentally, but he hadn't instituted the sacrament yet. So there must be some way in which you can still receive him spiritually, um, and that can be bread too. But I just think that the, the, that continual reference to bread in a, in a gospel that insists upon the sacraments is... is Important distinction. And Michael. And you want to reference what Janet said. I, I read it some time ago, and I can't remember, a while ago. Yeah. That that phrase under consideration for being changed. Right, yeah. Uh, it being changed would hopefully be uh, to come closer to the, in, the, the meaning of the, of the Greek rather than the church is uncomfortable with what this implies, and so we'll change it to make ourselves more comfortable. Uh, I have to look at it. I was hoping you wouldn't ask. But anyway, that's all we have time for today. And we'll see you next week.